Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Halloween is upon us, and the books are good, scary fun. Our reviewer, Charles Finch, is here to talk about the best new thrillers. Well, you know, I think of thrillers as being like those ships that are in a naval battle where they're throwing the cannons overboard, they're throwing their provisions overboard, anything to gain an extra yard over the enemy. Some people prefer their terrifying stories to be real. Our crime columnist, Marilyn Stasio, is here to talk about the season's best true crime books. It was just absurd. It was teenage recklessness and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was something about the senselessness of it that got to me. Plus, literary news and what we and other people are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Charles Finch is here to talk about thrillers, which he reviews in a roundup in this week's issue. Charlie, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So you start off your review of these six books with an interesting argument about the writing in thrillers and how good the writing is and how good the thrillers are. Can you tell us what point that you were making? Well, you know, I think of thrillers as being like those ships that are in a naval battle where they're throwing the cannons overboard, they're throwing their provisions overboard, anything to gain an extra yard over the enemy. They just are so interested in speed. And so is good writing compatible with that mission? I'm not always sure. Um, And some of the books I reviewed seem to have good writing maybe at the expense of pace. And then there are books that are (laughs) maybe where you could find fault in the writing, but the pace is so overwhelming and absorbing that you feel like it's a good trade. You mean that with good writing, you might notice the writing itself and sort of get a little bit bogged down in the prose as opposed to racing along with the plot? Exactly right. And good writing draws attention to itself. It makes you think. It might make you look up from the page and contemplate life for a minute rather than thinking about when that bomb is going to go off. Although, in a way, you could make a different kind of argument and say that there's a particular kind of good writing for thrillers, which might be different from good literary writing or good writing in some other genre, and that the better the writing is in the thriller for thriller, the less you notice it because the more it just kind of moves you along. I think that's exactly right. I think there are writers who are really underestimated because they write really cleanly and really sometimes poetically in an economic way. And I mean, I think Graham Greene is the sort of avatar or Eric Ampler or someone like that. And I think, um, you know, an underrated writer is J.K. Rowling, who makes lots of solecisms, but her writing is so efficient and and amazing at, at bringing you into the story and creating a picture or someone like that. Yeah, I think that p- people really do underestimate the skill involved in writing a good thriller. And I've, Oh, God. <laughs> I've had instances where I've met authors uh, of thrillers, and you talk to them, and they might be the most erudite, eloquent, well-spoken you know, people you've met who, had, who have all kinds, might even be huge literary snobs, and yet they write thrillers that are extremely accessible, and you realize like they're using all of that incredible skill 
toward writing a thriller that's in the vein of that writing that you kind of don't notice as you move on? Well, I think that's so insightful because I think Lee Child, who is one of the writers I reviewed, is this brilliant guy. If you ever meet him, he's incredibly erudite, to use your word. And you realize that he's hiding about 98% of that under the water and using all of his energy just as accelerant to, to fan the flames. Yeah, actually, he. I have met him, and he's also this like incredibly dapper. Um, yeah, man, he's sort of. He should be in the movies, maybe, and not Tom exactly. Cruise. Um, I think he does have a cameo as a as a police guard or something. So. Oh, interesting. I have not. Yeah. I have yet to see the the Jack Reacher movies. All right, what let's are talk. You doing with your life? I know. Now? I know. I. I, <laughs> um, I should be reading these thrillers too. I'm going to go over quickly the titles of the books that you review in this week's issue, and then we can talk a little bit about them as a group and individually. So. So um, the books that you reviewed are, we mentioned Lee Child, a Jack Reacher novel, the new one, Night School is the title, The Fall Guy, which is by James Lasden, The Long Room by Francesca Kay, Livia Lone by Barry Eisler, The Vanishing Year by Kate Moretti, and then uh, a familiar name um, to thriller readers, Martin Cruz Smith. His new book is called The Girl from Venice. How did you choose these books? Because we send you a gazillion thrillers, and you're the one who makes the cut and determines which ones you want to review. Within with some sometimes us telling telling you this is the book you got to include this one. But how did <laughs> right. you? Uh, we do dictate a little bit, but how did you pick these six? Um, you know, I would always rather write something positive than negative. So I tend to read a lot of first chapters, and I tend to browse through the books and look for something that strikes me. And I also try to find a balance between, you know, thriller is such a a big um, capacious category that it can cover a lot of sin. So I try to find a balance between, you know, maybe a domestic thriller, a military thriller or something like that. Um, And I just, I I love to find good writing. And there are some books in this roundup that I was less fond of than others, but all of them had something interesting and engaging about them that I thought, huh, that'd be interesting to write about. Ever since Gone Girl and then The Girl on the Train, the whole subgenre, as you call it, the domestic thriller, sometimes called the psychological thriller or the psychological suspense, has just been a burgeoning genre. I don't know, like, where it is on its trajectory of sort of growing and and then eventually I'm sure it'll peter out. But which books uh, or book among these would fall uh, most closely into that subgenre. Well, I think it's interesting. You might say The Vanishing Year by Kate Moretti at first glance, but I would actually um, push readers who liked Gone Girl, which is one of my favorite books. And for my money, that genre, as you uh, call it, can't last long enough. I love, I love that. And I think we spent the whole 2000s reading about vampires, and then suddenly the grown-ups are back. And I love having the grown-ups are back, and we just want to read about women murdering people and <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> domestic abuse. Stuff. Um, So I would push those readers who are maybe um, the ones I find myself most in sympathy with in terms of taste toward the fall guy. Mm -hmm. And if you're a pure thriller fan, like a John Sandford fan or a Vince Flynn fan, I think it might be a little bit languorous and slow paced for you. But it's a really tight thriller. It's short. It's by this British writer, James Ladson, who's um, got some literary cachet, some genre cachet. And it reminded me a lot of some of my favorite of the Ripley novels, like Ripley Underwater by Patricia Highsmith. It reminded me of the sort of menacing air you would find of um, uncertainty and lurking violence in early Ian McEwan, like The Cement Gardener, The Comfort of Strangers. Um, So I love that book, The Fall Guy, which is about an old friendship 
that is um, experiencing some tension because they both happen to be in love with the wife. This is a book uh, by James Lasden, who is a novelist and um, a professor of creative writing up at Columbia and a poet. Um, So I'm assuming this is not only a psychological thriller, but perhaps a more literary thriller, at least among... Yeah, it's definitely toward that um, end of the spectrum. You know, as I say in, in my review, I think a lot of writers who write literary thrillers seem to feel slightly above the work of plot, however. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a book that is so tightly plotted. There are things, incidental comments that come back on literally the last page to solve the mystery for you. It's just a really tightly made, interesting literary philosophical thriller with one of those great moody atmospheres that you might find in like a 50s movie. We should say, uh, too, that the word taught, which is a great descriptive uh, word, also is a signifier for not so long. Um, and it is this is a kind of <laughs> <That's right. laughs> quick, slender uh, book. Um, it looks like the kind of thing you could sit down and, and read in a weekend easily. Um, exactly right. Let's talk about uh, Martin Cruz Smith. For those of us who are not familiar with his work, you know, know the name, but kind of don't know what it is that he does, who is mm. he? What What's his specialty? So he is one of definitely the giants of the field right now, and he is most famous for writing about the Soviet Union, which is this um, super rich vein of possible thriller subjects, because obviously there was a lot of secrecy. And in fact, John Updike, right before he died, said, I think the thriller novel is still pining for the Soviet Union. Putin's bringing it back. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I think he writes these great thrillers set there, the most famous being Gorky Park. This is a bit of a departure. It's a standalone actually set during World War II, um, The Girl from Venice. And it's maybe more reminiscent of writers like Alan First or Sebastian Falk. I have to say I was not as fond of it as I am of his Soviet Union novels, um, with the caveat that I'm also the only human being in America who was immune to Anthony Doerr's book. So maybe World War II hmm. fiction. I, mean, I might not be the right audience for this book, and I'm sure it'll find people who love it. You're more of a Cold War guy. <laughs> you know, I love World War II. I just want it to be, um, I, I'm not sure I like the glamour that's sort of attached to it now, where people are just drinking in Paris bistros, and it, it feels a little bit uh, cheap to me. Let's talk about two of the books we haven't discussed, um, Livia Lone by Barry mm, Eisler. I love that one. Um, yeah, Livia Lone is, is, a, is an interesting book because it starts out sort of as a cartoon. You have this undercover cop who goes out and murders a rapist, um, and you think, okay, here we have a Kill Bill or something. And then it turns out to be grounded in this incredibly detailed, heartbreaking, dark, but never manipulative portrait of child sex trafficking from Thailand. Um, Mm. Livia, who is the title character, is sort of trying to both avenge her own um, tragedy and find her sister, who she was trafficked with and then separated from. So it's a really interesting, grounded, detailed, smart book, Um, kind of maybe in the lineage of, I would say, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, the cover is a little bit... Uh, yeah, I think... It has a little nod. We have a kind of sneak thing going on with a girl's yep. face. Tell us about The Long Room by Francesca Kay. I liked this book. Again, this is one that maybe um, a pure thriller reader would find a little bit slow, but it's a really interesting spy novel set in early 1980s um, London, everyone is watching the Jeremy Irons Brideshead Revisited and talking about it. And it's about a spy who slowly, to his own surprise, gets drawn into maybe 
treason. And it's not perfect as a purely plotted thriller, but mm-hmm. it's incredibly poetic and evocative. And um, I, I found it, you know, if you if you sort of like that milieu, if you like Le Carre or someone like that, I think it would really appeal to you. All right. Now I'm going to just make you do big grand sweeping judgments here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> among these six, um, if you had to recommend one or two, even if you know, given perhaps directed towards specific kinds of readers, which would be your favorites? I think that if you have a taste for a literary thriller, if you don't need the pure adrenaline rush, I would recommend The Fall Guy by James Lasden. If you want a little bit more of that rush, I would say Livy Alone by Barry Eisler. All right. I've just put those two to the side of my of my desk here. Hooray. All right. Charlie Finch, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Pamela. Um, This week again, Charles Finch reviews a roundup of thrillers for us. The books he reviews include Lee Child's Night School, his latest Jack Reacher novel, The Long Room by Francesca Kay, The Fall Guy by James Lasden, The Girl from Venice by Martin Cruz Smith, The Vanishing Year by Kate Moretti, and finally, Livy Alone by Barry Eisler. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. Alexander Alter is here with the latest in literary news. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. Let's talk more about the weird year in literary awards. It's another unprecedented prize that was awarded this week. Uh, The Man Booker came out, and it went to an American for the first time. And the winner is Paul Beatty for his novel, The Sellout. It was a really, I thought, bold and interesting choice for the Booker Committee, not only that they chose an American, but that they chose this really... uh, dark satire with mm-hmm. an outrageous premise. Um, it was, you know, well-reviewed in our in our paper and elsewhere. And the novel is about uh, an African-American urban farmer in Southern California who smokes a lot of pot and 
conducts this strange social experiment where he decides to reinstate slavery in his own home. He gets a willing actor to play his own slave and tries to resegregate his local school. And these stunts end him up in front of the Supreme Court. One of our 10 best books of 2015. Yes. So, you know, the book had a really kind of interesting origin story. Paul Beatty spoke about it a little bit in his acceptance speech. He apparently got a grant from an organization that gives out creative grants to people. And he didn't want to write the book. He was talking about this. He said it was a really hard book to write. It was very uh, emotionally trying. But he had this money, and he felt like he had to show something for it. So he was very The only one to write a book for the money. (laughs) Exactly. And he had a kind of interesting evolution as a writer. You know, he started off in the 90s as a hip-hop poet. He was the first Grand Poetry Slam champion for the New Rican Poets Cafe that earned him his first book deal with them, and he published some poetry. And then I think the kind of, uh, he had these narratives in his mind that couldn't be kind of jammed into just a few verses, so he started writing novels. Well, the money may come, as you noted yesterday, Amazon, the book shot up from, what was it, about 1,500 to... Number one. I mean, the Booker Bump is a real thing. You can, yeah. It's amazing. It seems to move sales even more than the National Book Award mm-hmm. in America. Well, I'm sure the Nobel um, is doing lots for Bob Dylan. For Bob Dylan, <laughs> yeah. No, it went, it went to number one. The publisher, FSG, is reprinting it in hardcover and paperback. They're reprinting 10,000 hardcover copies and 50,000 paperbacks. So I think they might even have to do more. It was already out of stock on Amazon yesterday. All right. Let's hear it one last time now for the losers, although, of course, they're not losers, but the runners-ups, those other writers who made it to the shortlist, which yes, is still you, a major achievement. You can always say you were shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, which is nothing to sniff at. Um, there was a really interesting group of books that made it to the finalists this year. Not too many big-name authors. They were very stylistically diverse. One was a historical thriller called His Bloody Project by Graham McRae Burnett. There was a linked short story collection, which I guess the judges were treating as a novel for this purpose, by David Soleil. It's titled All That Man Is, and it's about men in different phases of their lives. And a genre-bending debut novel, Eileen, by Otessa Mosfeg. There was another novel, Hot Milk, by Deborah Levy, which made the the cut. And she was, I think, the only finalist who had made the shortlist in a previous year for another novel. So, yeah, I mean, looking at all those writers um, and looking at kind of the literary landscape this year, it's been a strange one. I mean, then we had Bob Dylan, another American, winning the Nobel, which hasn't happened in a long time. I don't think we'll, it'll be a long time before we see two Americans winning the the Nobel and the Booker in a single year again. Right. And with the National Book Award, we kind of know it's going to be an American. Yeah, a lot of Americans for that All right. We have two weeks off before we talk literary award winners again, unless we do the Whiting, right? The Whiting falls in between the National Book Award and... Maybe we could just make it every week. There seems to to be something else to talk about, Alexandra. (laughs) All right. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. If you like hearing from authors and reviewers on the podcast, help us spread the word. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and rate the show or leave us a comment, preferably favorable. We'd love to hear what you think. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. It is always such fun to talk about bloody murder and crime with Marilyn Stasio, especially when it's true crime. Marilyn, thanks for being here. Thank you. So you have written up these 
six new true crime stories for our Halloween issue. I'm going to just quickly run through the titles, and then we'll talk a little bit about the overall task of reviewing these books and then about the particular books in question. So starting with Who Killed These Girls? Cold Case, The Yogurt Shop Murders by Beverly Lowry. The Notorious Mrs. Clem, Murder and Money in the Gilded Age by Wendy Gamber. Murder in the Bayou, Who Killed the Women Known as the Jeff Davis Eight by Ethan Brown. The Thieves of Threadneedle Street, The Incredible True Story of the American Forgers Who Nearly Broke the Bank of England by Nicholas Booth. A Very English Scandal, Sex, Lies, and a Murder Plot at the Heart of the Establishment by John Preston. And finally, The Trials of the King of Hampshire, Madness, Secrecy, and Betrayal in Georgian England by Elizabeth Foister. I have to say, just reading these titles, they all sound extremely engrossing. (laughs) I like the spread. I mean... Not one of them seems to have anything to do with another one. You know, they're from all over the map, which is the way I like to choose them. There's got to be something there for everyone. How many books were you sent, uh, and how many did you... (sighs) A deep sigh, that's the answer. (laughs) In the end, it's always how good is the writing, Mm -hmm. but also how interesting is the crime. I get lots of true crime books. The writing is... (laughs) goes from A to Z. Mm -hmm. But the crimes themselves have are varying interests. So I pick the ones that just strike me as personally interesting. I mean, everyone else, I'm sorry for you. But (laughs) how much is it about the crime itself? And how much is it about sort of larger issues raised by the crime? There's that. For example, the um, notorious Mrs. Clem. That one uh, really interested me because I had no idea what was happening at the end of the Civil War. There seemed to have been no economic system whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Banks let people in the door with, and gave them money without asking them for any kinds of identification. It was the most extraordinary wide-open period. So who was the notorious Mrs. Clem, and what was her crime? Mrs. Clem was was a very clever con woman, and she just basically was running a Ponzi scheme. Mm-hmm. And she got her friends on her very street. There were a whole bunch of friends, and they lived in the same street. This was in Indianapolis. Yes, that's right. She got them all to invest. They weren't investing in anything particularly. It was just, if you give me your money— I will double it. I cannot say how these people fell for it. They really did, but they all fell for it. And it was really just a pyramid scheme. Mm -hmm. And how unusual was it that it was a woman running this racket? Ah, now that's interesting. The author very smartly pointed out, if she had turned her attention to something Mm non-criminal, who knows where she would have gone? But as the author said, maybe... She was just bored mm-hmm. being a housewife in Indianapolis. It's interesting because these books, speaking of gender, divide rather neatly in half into those that concern women committing crimes and having crimes committed against them and those that are purely about uh, men. So I want to turn to a couple of the other ones about women. Who killed these girls? 
Cold Case, The Yogurt Shop Murders by Beverly Lowry is about a really gruesome crime that took place in 1991. What happened? Oh, it's just very sad. Two silly boys going in trying to uh, rob a yogurt shop, and they didn't realize that four of the girls who worked there were still there in the back room. They were Mm. changing to leave. So they didn't know what to do with them, and they killed them. It was just absurd. It was teenage recklessness and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was something about the senselessness of it that got to me. People panic Mm -hmm. and commit the most outrageous crimes. That was very moving, the way the girls had to die, because they were just such innocent girls. They were really young how does that become a book? Because you, you kind of hear the bare bones of that story and you think, well, that's terrible. But what is there to say about this senseless crime against these four girls by two young men? It's what the author gets out of it or what the author sees in it or what the author. It's always about the author, if you look closely. The author feels the way I did. You know, there was something senseless about taking these lives and it was just wild boys That's the way the book was written, in order to explore that. That's the way with all the books. You can pretty much see what the author was interested in, and it's usually the thing that also grabs the reader. Another one of the books, um, again, rounding out that group of three about women, also concerns a number of murders of young women. Um, Murder in the Bayou, who Uh kills the women known as the Jeff Davis aide by Ethan Brown. Uh, What's the crime? That's different. That was not an irrational, quick, on-the-spot, stupid murder. This was something awful. This was about a corrupt town Mm -hmm. in Louisiana, and that's what the author was uh, writing about. The actual murders were murders of prostitutes in this small Louisiana town. But the author was really interested in showing how totally corrupt the police um, were. That's what makes that book interesting, is his outrage. The author's voice always comes through. Your day job, of course, for us at least, is as our crime columnist, um, where you deal primarily, um, almost exclusively, in fiction. um, And you're still relatively new to this genre as a reviewer, true crime. (laughs) Are there things that these true crime books capture or do that you don't get out of the fictional crime books that you read as a reviewer? (laughs) So I read for history. Mm -hmm. I believe that this is what it was like in that period. The Thieves of Threadneedle Street are just a bunch of scoundrels, but I love them so. And reading a book like this lets me feel that I'm there in the period at that time, and I can appreciate these clever, clever thieves. All right, let's talk about the thieves of Threadneedle Street. The subtitle to that book is The Incredible True Story of the American Forgers Who Nearly Broke the Bank of England by Nicholas Booth. Is that an exaggeration, or who were no, these guys? And no, did they... they always made it. Then they were American. They were brothers. There was a family of brothers. I think there were four of them, but only two of them actually. Three of them actually went into... Uh, the con business. <laughs> criminality. <laughs> And they were quite good at it. And they just talked their way into the banks. What's the time period? 
Uh, that's also civil war. Mm-hmm. I never knew this. See, now that made me interested in the civil war mm-hmm. or post-civil war, really. It makes you understand something about where you live. If the country could totally survive, I mean, survive a war. How horrible was that? You know, a civil war, the country was torn to shreds. So they can survive a war, and what happens? People come and take advantage of their weakness. Right. Let's talk about another book that takes place in England, The Trials of the King of Hampshire, Madness, Secrecy, and Betrayal in Georgian England by Elizabeth Foister. What's the the crime at hand? Oh, such a sad crime. It is a terrible family who wants to get their inheritance mm-hmm. before the before the uh, head of the family has actually died. So they want to declare him insane. And I think a nephew finally managed to get this poor man in jail. I mean, in uh, up before court. But the thing that's interesting to me about this book is that he really was a little uh, simple-minded. Right, he was sort of had disabilities. Yes, he did. He had learning disabilities. But the loveliest part about this book is that as a boy, it was recognized that he had these mental problems, and he was put out for, you know, homeschooling mm-hmm. with the family of Jane Austen. Right. Jane Austen and Lord Byron both make appearances in yes. the story. Isn't that wonderful? Now, Jane Austen wasn't actually born yet, but her family was a very close-knit, loving, very cultured, intelligent family. And they took in this boy who was slightly mentally challenged. He matched their son who was about the same age and had the same problem. The two boys grew up together, and it just seemed like such a charming household. Oh, by the way, there's a reason for that. The author normally writes about families and children, so that explains to me why there is such sympathy and empathy. And what drew her, perhaps, to the story. Yeah. The third book that's about men, and also I now realize forms another divide in this group, which is stories about England and the American stories. And that third English book is called A Very English Scandal, Mm. Sex, Lies, and a Murder Plot at the Heart of the Establishment by John Preston. Well, that's how I chose them, three from America and three from England. And that one is the sex scandals in which the PMs were Mm -hmm. caught with young boys. And in those days, it was not only scandalous, but it was illegal. And what's terrifying is it's 1979. It's It's not that long ago. 1979 could land you in jail. And indeed, that's what happened. Everybody was blackmailing this one. And God, it was, I mean, these poor people, how they lived through it, I don't know. But it's worth reading just because it makes you appreciate what we've gone through. And we're not like that anymore, hopefully. That's the sort of book that you read and say, there but for the grace of God. You know, whatever. You don't have to be homosexual to feel that way because it was just a different time and morals were different and attitudes were different. But something that 
would never land you in, in jail, mm-hmm. is something that would have you up in a, before a magistrate. So you mentioned um, when you picked these books that you divided them yourself into the Americans and the Brits. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose to divide it that way? And, and are there things in these British stories that you don't find in the American counterparts or vice versa? Actually, no. I mean, I just did it because I wanted to have a good spread. To be fair. Yes, Fair and balanced? That's me. All right. Well, let's be judgmental for a minute and talk about your favorites uh, in this group. I think The Thieves of Threadneedle Street is probably my favorite book because the brothers were such interesting guys. I mean, they were so clever. They were so smart. They were gentlemen thieves. And at the end, when they were caught, even the Pinkertons who followed them to Europe and Havana. Mm-hmm. They were finally caught, one of them, the lead guy, in Havana. And Pinkerton himself said that he would miss them. Mm-hmm. He said, these dude thieves, these gentlemen thieves, these silk hat thieves, how he would miss them because it was the end of an era and the beginning of a new era. Crime books, um, as we all know, are incredibly fun, but they're also quite sad, especially when they're true. And was there any book that left you um, especially moved? I felt very sad about the girls. And who killed these girls? Yeah, because they were so young and they were so innocent and they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. They were very touching to me, I think. Not that I didn't feel something for the girls in the bayou, Mm -hmm. but that was different. It was the way the author wrote it. Your attention and your feelings as well as your mind were directed, are directed by an author in a certain way so that I was directed to feel sympathy for the girls. But I was also directed by the author to be furious with that town in Louisiana in Murder in the Bayou. A very English scandal, um, the sex lies in a murder plot in the Houses of Parliament. You say um, that Preston has written this page-turner like a political thriller. Mm -hmm. Was this the best in terms of the the story and the way it was constructed of the group? Yes. It has a nice structure to it dramatically. I mean, I shouldn't talk about it that way. These are human lives involved. But there is such a nice dramatic arc to what these men were caught at and what they were, how they had to pay for their sexual proclivities, which is really what it came down to. But also you get a sense of how politics were shaped Mm -hmm. by men who were blackmailing one another. Charming. All right. (laughs) All all delightful tales. I'm going to run quickly through the titles again. Who Killed These Girls by Beverly Lowry, The Notorious Mrs. Clem by Wendy Gamber, Murder in the Bayou, Ethan Brown, The Thieves of Threadneedle Street by Nicholas Booth, A Very English Scandal by John Preston, and The Trials of the King of Hampshire by Elizabeth Foister, all masterfully reviewed this week by our crime columnist and now our true crime columnist, Marilyn Stasio. Marilyn, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun.
My colleagues Greg Coles and Jen Salai join us now to talk about what we are reading and what other people are reading. Hi, Greg. Hi, Jen. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. So let's talk a little bit, just a little bit, about the bestseller list because we've decided amongst ourselves we're not that interested in this week's newcomers. <laughs> <laughs> no offense. Uh, yeah, Congratulations that, that, That's all. not entirely fair. It's not um, fair. There are titles at the tops of both uh, lists this week, new titles um, right at number one, including on the hardcover fiction side, John Sanford continues his Virgil Flowers series with a book called Escape Clause. That's new at number one. And uh, on the hardcover nonfiction list, also new at number one, um, Chip Gaines and his wife, Joanna Gaines, uh, who are famous as uh, the the hosts of the HGTV show Fixer Upper, have a memoir they wrote with a guy named Mark D'Agostino. That's called The Magnolia Story, and it's a deeper dive into their lives than than you get on the TV show. Than you get on the TV show, Greg. I have only ever seen Fixer Upper in like fleeting moments at my sister-in-law's house. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's more than I've seen, so excellent. Let's talk about what we're reading. Jen? Uh, this week, I started something, actually, that uh, Greg talked a b- little bit about last week, because I like to copy Greg, which is Warren Turner. <laughs> Serpentine by Stefan Hertzmann. I think I'm pronouncing that properly. It is a book that's based on his grandfather's diaries, which were written in the 60s, but his grandfather was actually born in 1891 Mm -hmm. and lived until 1981. It's the story of his life throughout the century. And I was just, I'm about 75 pages in, and I'm just marveling at the recreation of his grandfather's childhood, which is just really beautifully done. One of the questions Greg raised uh, last week was, you know, is it fiction? I'm not sure that it's right. fiction. How does that feel to you? You know, I mean, there's something just so intimate and moving about it, which, you know, the best fiction really does. Right. Um, but at the same time, you can, it sort of just really vibrates with this immediacy that some memoirs do as well. You know, there is this line And I just wanted to read it out, which just really impressed me, where he's talking about his grandfather as a child. Waddling after his statuesque mother like a duckling, entertaining her with his whimsical ways and irrepressible urges to cuddle and play the fool. He would dance in his clogs or walk around the wash house with his tin cup, secretly drinking the soapy water in which his own dirty underwear was soaking. I don't know. There was just something about that that I just found so moving. It was it was like I could really see it. And then later on, there's sort of bigger questions about politics and wars, of course, which are things that his grandfather directly experienced. Since we're talking so specifically about the prose, we should say that it is a work in translation. So let's. Um, who is the translator on the book? So the translator on the book <laughs> is. It's translated from the Dutch by. David McKay, and it's really beautifully done. Beautiful prose in English. Have yes. you read the entire book now? Uh, I have not. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> I, you know, I'm a, We're all about incompletion. I, I'm an average reader. I read about 40 pages an hour, but I've, I'm working on so many different things at once that, I, you know, I'm still reading Herzog, which right. I started this summer. I, you know, I read a few pages before bed and uh, and move on. Then to the, I pick up another book and I, I read into that. And so uh, right now I'm juggling probably half a dozen different books. But the book you have in front of I, you including, is... Including uh, Zadie Smith's new book, which actually doesn't come out um, for another few weeks. It's out, I think, on uh, November 15th is the publication date. It's called Swing Time, a beautiful novel, you know, vibrant novel. Um, it 
covers some of the same territory as her most recent novel and W uh, in that it's about a couple of girls growing up in the projects in northwest London. One of them is a very talented dancer. They meet when they're seven years old at a dance class uh, in their neighborhood and bond immediately. Partly, um, they're they're the only black girls in the class. I'm pretty sure they're the only ones. Um, They uh, respond immediately um, because they have the same skin tone, the same Mm -hmm. freckles and, you know, um, like that. The narrator is um, passionate about music, passionate about dance. She watches musicals all the time, but she's not an especially talented dancer. And her friend Tracy, um, who's the other girl in the book, is a very talented dancer just to her core. Um, It goes on to tell the story of their friendship, um, and the narrator eventually goes on to become the personal assistant to a very famous pop star who's who's clearly modeled on Madonna. Um, So there's a lot about celebrity in the book, too. And speaking of song, I only recently learned that uh, Zadie Smith is quite the singer herself and was In a cabaret fact, singer. In Jen Salai um, sent me a link yesterday to um, Zadie Smith singing uh, some jazz at a New York Times Tea Magazine event. And All right, let's listen to a little clip of that. <laughs> yeah. I'll never regret the years I'm giving. They're easy to give. I've also just finished reading, um, to the end, uh, James Lasden's new novel, The Fall Guy, which Charles Finch uh, reviews in his Thrillers Roundup in the current issue of the book review. Um, It's got this lugubrious kind of creepy vibe to it. Um, Finch, in his review, compares it to late Patricia Highsmith. It's just got this real uh, sense of foreboding hanging over it. So that was a a very fun, quick read. Yeah, actually, we were just talking to Charlie about it, and uh, and, uh, I put it at the top of my pile here. Oh, excellent. I'm I'm glad he mentioned that one uh, on the podcast. How how about you, Pamela? What are you reading now? Oh, I speak for the slow readers of the world here, because I'm still making my way through Hamilton. But the nice thing about reading um, a big... uh, highly detailed biography like this is that you, there's always something new to talk about. So I'm sort of in the Constitutional Convention era um, of the book. This is where Jefferson um, comes back from France, and it becomes quite clear that he and Hamilton have very different ideas about how to run uh, the future government, and moreover, that Madison sides with uh, Jefferson so a few things are interesting here. First of all, you realize like this is before really the political parties had, had truly emerged, even the early ones. And it's interesting, just that fluidity. Um, and there's this question where, you know, Madison, of course, who had written the Federalist Papers with Hamilton and they had aligned, had a, a falling out. And Hamilton was really uh, felt betrayed when Madison aligned himself with Jefferson over the over the issue of uh, the assumption of uh, of the debt left over from the Revolutionary War. So I I found that to be incredibly interesting. It's also remarkable. Washington supported the federal government assuming all of the state debts, um, but he declined to say so publicly because he didn't want to be... He had a public position and a private position. Well, he didn't want to be viewed as partisan. (laughs) So we've come a long way. I don't know if it's the right way, but we've come a long way. Um, And the other uh, interesting thing, too, is, you know, you really can see the origins of the current election um, in the foundations of uh, the American government and 
Jefferson, of course, was the first populist, really. Um, and um, it's interesting. He was a big spender, had a very profligate um, lifestyle and, and was quite showy. So that might remind some people of, of a certain person. Um, <laughs> however, uh, the analogy only goes so far because, of course, he was a formidable intellect um, and uh, a great mind. But I'll, I'll leave it at that. And the last thing, um, the reason uh, why it's interesting to read right now is I was at a panel on Monday night at NYU. It was about presidential biography, um, but, you know, political biography in general. There's David Marinus, who's written biographies of both Obama and Clinton. There was David Remnick, who's written a biography of Obama Jonathan Alter, who's working on a biography of Jimmy Carter, and then Jacob Weisberg, who uh, did a short biography of Reagan. I don't know if it was recorded. If it if it was, it's worth looking up uh, online um, to watch it. And sitting behind me was Ron Chernow. Um, <laughs> so it, it kind of gave a coherence to my week, um, even <laughs> if it didn't bring me to completion of the book. It's interesting, um, you know, you talk about the early fluidity of the government, how parties themselves hadn't even formed yet, and they were still kind of determining what the form would be. And in some ways, we've moved so far past that way, we're in this really kind of ossified form. But in another way, we're still relitigating all of these same questions. And it's uh, no wonder that not just Hamilton, the musical, and the book have, have been huge, but the biographies of the founders are yes. always such hot sellers. The other interesting thing, too, is, you know, I, I have not read a biography of Madison um, nor of Washington, but I read American Sphinx, the um, Joseph Ellis biography of Jefferson. And, you know, when you read that biography, you're just like, Jefferson was just the best. He was great. <laughs> I mean, of course, he had contradictions and faults, et cetera, but you just, you're on Jefferson's team. And now I'm reading Hamilton, and I'm like, that Jefferson... Um, <laughs> you really, you really switch sides. So, uh, so it's a political process. All right, Greg, Jen, thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com/books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.